Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode on non-human skin is part of our series devoted to our March 2020 issue on skin. I'm your host, Elizabeth Nand, a third year in the Microbial Pathogenesis Department. And I'm your co-host, Kelsey Castle. I'm a third year in the Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases. I'm Carrie Ann Davison, a third year in the Department of Genetics. And I'm Devin Washi, a fourth year graduate student in the Immunobiology Department. In this episode of the YJBM podcast, we will be talking about animal skin and skin coverings. In the simplest terms, skin is a boundary, a barrier between you and your environment. Human skin is the largest organ in the body and serves numerous vital functions. Skin protects us from our environment, from physical injury, chemicals, the sun, predators, and pathogens. Skin is a way to sense and communicate with our surroundings. Skin functions in metabolism and thermoregulation, and it must constantly repair and regenerate itself. The skin of other animals serves the same role as our human skin, but in sometimes unexpected and even extreme ways. We are familiar with some of the different characteristics of animal skin and skin coverings. Mammals have hair on their skin, birds feathers, reptiles have thick, dry, scaly skin, amphibians have thin, wet skin, fish have scales, pachyderms are a group of thick-skinned animals, and echinoderms are spiny-skinned animals, including starfish. In this episode, we will dive into how different skin structures, some familiar and others less so, support different functions for animals in their environments. So what exactly is skin and, and how do we define it? That is a, a really good question and it, I actually don't have a simple answer and that's in part because we use the term skin so commonly, we'll use it to describe different things like the skin of a peach or a pudding skin or a potato skin. And while we might use the term skin to describe the outer coverings of a body, not all animals have skin. Think of the simplest animal, the sponge. Sponges don't have skin, they don't even have tissues or organs, yet the outermost layer of cells called panadocytes are still commonly called skin cells. So what about exoskeletons or feathers? Exoskeletons are, are not skin either. In arthropods, exoskeletons are made of a substance called chitin, and this makes it a non-living hard protective armor. In contrast, skin is a living and active barrier against the environment. We know from our own skin and the skin of vertebrate animals that it's a flexible, continuous outer covering with multiple layers, the epidermis, the dermis, and the hypodermis, and each layer performs different important functions. Skin coverings, such as scales and feathers, are not skin. Skin, hair, nails, scales, feathers, hooves, horns, these are all part of the integumentary system, which together protect animals from their environment. Clearly, a thick, tough skin would offer good protection. 
sperm whales actually have the thickest skin of any living animal. On the back and on the head in male sperm whales, the skin can be up to 14 inches thick, which is 356 millimeters. For comparison, our skin is about half a millimeter to four millimeters thick. So that's just, just so crazy thick. The famous description of Moby Dick captures how protective sperm whale skin can be. Moby Dick was described as having harpoons embedded in his side from all the failed attempts to pierce through his skin and blubber. Sperm whales need thick skin to protect themselves, not just from human harpoons, but from the naturally harsh ocean ecosystem. Sperm whales must shed their skin, actually the, to prevent it from getting too thick. Shedding skin protects against barnacles, other marine animals, and pathogens. And in an event not too unlike a nice exfoliating face scrub that we might use, sperm whales gather together and they all rub up against each other to exfoliate their skin. And in an article by Andy Coughlin published in New Scientist, he calls this event a mass scratchathon, and I just really love that term, so I'm going to keep using it. This scratchathon results in large amounts of dead skin sloughing off and floating in the ocean like huge plastic bags. If you look up a picture, you will not be disappointed. What's also cool about this sloughed off skin is that researchers can collect it and study the skin of the, these whales to learn about their behavior and their habitat. Even better, this is a non-invasive collection. There's no need to take a biopsy of the whale's skin or to examine their stomach contents. So what has this research uncovered? By studying the, the carbon and nitrogen isotope levels in sperm whale skin, researchers are actually able to learn a lot about uh, sperm whale habitat and diet. One example is a study published by Ruiz Cooley and colleagues in 2004 in the journal Marine Ecology Progress Series. This team analyzed carbon and nitrogen isotopes in sperm whale skin and jumbo squid muscle cells, and they concluded that sperm whales eat jumbo squid. These squid actually have super razor sharp tentacles that leave scars, even in the thick skin of the sperm whale. And clearly these scars themselves are evidence that these species are interacting, but the carbon and nitrogen isotope levels clarify a predator and prey relationship between the species without having to kill the sperm whale and examine its stomach contents. Additionally, from studying sperm whale skin, we can get a glimpse into the impact of human pollution on this vulnerable species, particularly after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Research teams have analyzed the effects of the chemical dispersants that were used to clean up the spill on the health of the sperm whale skin. Some other groups have actually taken skin biopsies to look at long-term metal levels in the skin uh, as a consequence of the spill. And by studying sperm whale skin cells, we can learn a lot of just intrinsically interesting facts about their biology, but we can also find ways to better protect them in the future. So we've heard about thick skin in water, now let's move to thick skin on land. And in a certain sense, the skin of animals on land, it actually just protects us from drying out and helps us retain moisture. In contrast to the scratchathons of sperm whales, African elephants, whose skin can be up to one inch thick, actually never shed their skin. Instead, the stress on their skin from bending as it gets thicker causes the characteristic cracks you would recognize in their skin. This was discovered by mathematical modeling performed by Antonio Martins and colleagues, and it was published in an article in Nature Communications in 2018. 
These cracks are really important. Elephants, they don't have sweat glands, but these cracks allow their skin to retain water up to actually 10 times more moisture than if they didn't have the cracks. This helps them stay cool, and they can also fill these cracks with mud to protect themselves from parasites and the sun. If elephants shed their skin, then it wouldn't be getting thick enough to crack from bending, and this protection would be lost. So it's funny that they figured, they figured out that the skin is cracking based on mathematical modeling, because the same thing happens with rocks. That is super interesting. There's all this really fascinating body of literature about the difference in cracking from something bending and getting too thick and bending versus shrinking and cracking. Yeah, there's just so many examples in nature of um, natural cracking processes. Yeah, the patterns in nature can come from all sorts of places. So elephants have cracks. They're not actually lines or wrinkles. They look like wrinkles, and I don't know if there's a difference in how they're classified. Uh, yes, yeah, so elephants actually have both wrinkly skin and cracks in their skin, um, which are different features. The wrinkles and lines that appear for us as we age are the result of our skin getting thinner and less elastic, not getting thicker like the elephant skin crackling. Wrinkles are loose and saggy, which is also the result of decreased fat deep in the skin. And a big risk factor for wrinkles is UV exposure, which can harm the connective tissue in the dermis of our skin, um, causing decreased elasticity. The cracks in elephant skin actually resemble a human disease called ichthyosis vulgaris, in which human skin doesn't shed. And so by better understanding how not shedding skin is actually beneficial to the elephants, this may help us better understand a human skin disease. So clearly from sperm wells to elephants, tough, thick skin offers protection. We can think of the difference in the cut on the bottom of our heel compared to a cut on our eyelid, but contrary to how it might first appear, thin, loose skin can also offer similar protection from physical injury. Take the skin of the hagfish, a marine organism that takes an opposite approach to skin thickness as the sperm well, yet it still has a way to protect itself against the harsh ocean. Hackfish skin is incredibly loose. It basically just hangs off their body. And if a predator takes a bite of the hagfish skin, the skin actually just sort of slides away and leaves the internal organs undamaged. The integumentary system of the hagfish then releases a hidden protection mechanism. Glands in the skin release a profuse amount of mucus, like truly bucket fuels. There's some really fun videos of this. And the mucus is really jelly-like. It's mostly water and some proteins. And just this vast amount of mucus scares away the predators, even after they've taken a bite of the loose skin. One more really interesting fact about the hagfish that's unrelated to skin, but the mucus is so strong that it may possibly be used as a natural sustainable clothing fiber, which could be an alternative to synthetic fibers like nylon. So we may have the hagfish integumentary system to thank for an up and coming new fashion trend. So skin secretions like hagfish mucus protect animals against predators. We probably all have some familiarity with brightly covered poison dart frogs. The common name for a group of frogs in the Dendrobatidae family native to Central and South America. 
We will follow this amphibian through our stories today. And the skin of the poison dart frog contains two types of cutaneous glands, some mucus glands and poison glands. The mucus is important for gas exchange and keep the skin moist. And the poison glands contain lipophilic alkaloid toxins and granules. So these glands are also sometimes called granular glands. So these frogs are not synthesizing this diverse class of toxic alkaloids de novo, but instead they're able to acquire them from their diet of ants and centipedes and mites, which makes for a pretty powerful skin secretion to protect against predators. So we've heard of examples of how skin protects from physical injury and predators from thick skin to thin skin and skin secretions, but skin also serves a very important role protecting our internal organs from the sun. We know that UV radiation from the sun can damage our skin and cause skin cancer. This skin is a barrier that protects this UV radiation from damaging our other organs. Nevertheless, we still must protect our skin from the sun. And other animals must protect themselves from the sun. This is something I hadn't really thought about a lot until this summer. And it turns out that marine organisms, including fungi and coral, as well as fish and birds, actually all produce small molecule sunscreens in the form of microsporin-like amino acids and related gladiosols. And these compounds actually are absorbing UV radiation in much of the same way as our synthetic sunscreens do. The ability of fish and birds to make these compounds was only recently discovered in 2015 by Osborne, Almerbrook, and Halsworth et al. and published in the journal eLife. Mammals sadly do not have this ability to synthesize these compounds, but instead can use behavioral avoidance and mud to prevent skin damage. Like elephants covering their skin in mud, pigs and rhinoceroses both use mud baths to keep cool and protect against the sun but the integumentary system of the hippo has an added advantage. Hippo skin is very thick and hippos are under the water much of the day. However, their eyes generally peek out and the area around their eyes contains the thinnest, most sensitive skin and they need to protect this area. And so to do that, they secrete what is commonly called blood sweat around their eyes. This is a red orange fluid, but it's, actually really important. It's absorbing UV light and it's also an antibiotic. The two acidic components in this serve as a self-made sunscreen to protect the sensitive skin. And I really wish we as humans could also produce our own sunscreens. I really hate putting sunscreen on to go to the beach. That sounds pretty cool, but blood sweat sounds really disgusting. <laughs> no, it's like a terrible name for something that's not actually that gross. I don't know. I'm, I, I don't wish that we could make our own blood sweat. I'm very happy that we don't make our own blood sweat. Yeah, if we made it ourselves, I would want it to be clear. Yeah, that would be much better than red-orange. Oh, so clearly, we have a lot to learn about the skin and the integumentary system of animals. From skin thickness and toughness and crackling to loose skin and skin secretions, various adaptations allow the integumentary system to protect animals from their environment. By learning about the different ways skin serves as a protective barrier, I am amazed by how crazy nature can be. Research into these different adaptations reveals the unexpected. We may even take what we learn to design new chemicals, new materials, or even new treatments for human skin conditions. After reading about all these ways that skin protects animals from their environment, 
I'm just a little more thankful for this barrier and all it's actively doing to protect my organs from the sun and injury and pathogens. So we just heard Carrie Ann talk about the most basic function of skin protection. In a nutshell, skin is supposed to keep your insides inside. But if the purpose of skin is so simple, then why does skin get so complex? I'm sure you can think of brightly colored animals. Poison dart frogs. Or animals that could change the way they look. Cuttlefish. And those are some good examples, very relevant for what we're about to talk about. All of these properties seem really strange when you think about it. Skin is supposed to protect you from the outside. Why does it get so weird? Well, the simple answer to that question is evolution. But what's the first thing that you think of when I say evolution? Survival of the fittest. Yes, but what does that actually mean? To really understand survival of the fittest, we need to go back to Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. Many people know the story. Darwin was in the Galapagos Islands and he was looking at the beak sizes and shapes of different finches. He noticed that all of the finches seemed closely related, yet they all had different beaks. He also noticed that the size and shape of the beak seemed to correlate with the kind of food the birds ate. This may seem obvious to you now, but Darwin was just beginning to understand a fundamental principle in all of biology, evolution by natural selection. Darwin posited four key facts. First, not all individuals in a population are identical. There is variation in the way each individual looks and behaves, and these are called their traits. Second, Darwin knew that the traits of parent individuals were inherited by their offspring. Third, Darwin posed that in a given population, there are more offspring born than can survive. Interestingly, Darwin was heavily influenced on this point of overpopulation by another book that had been recently published called The Principle of Population by Thomas Malthus, which was actually about the economics of human poverty and famine. And yet it contained key ideas about Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. Finally, Darwin posed that not all individuals would survive to reproduce, and each individual would have a different number of babies. Taken together, these four points conclude that because different traits would affect the survival and reproduction of individuals, favorable traits in an environment would allow an individual to have more babies. This is natural selection. Over time, the frequency of traits in that population changes, and that's evolution. It's evolution that allows populations to adapt to their environment and become fit for that environment. Hence the phrase survival of the fittest, though it should really be survival and reproduction of the fittest. Well, now we've had a nice detour to 1859, but what does any of this have to do with skin? Well, skin is an animal's boundary between itself and everything else. Skin is how an animal is seen or not and recognized by other animals. Therefore, an animal's skin is vitally important for its survival and reproduction. Because of this, skin is the subject of evolutionary pressure, and that's why it can get weird. One thing you might think of when it comes to weird skin is when different animals look alike. This phenomenon is called mimicry. There are examples of animals mimicking other animals, plants, even bird poop. And so clearly, mimicry can get pretty extreme. But anytime an animal mimics something or someone else, it's because it helps that animal survive and reproduce. Take those poison dart frogs. What do you think of? Really bright colors. Yes, and that's because most poison dart frogs are bright, brightly colored. But there are also frogs that are harmless that look like the colorful poison dart frogs. 
there are two kinds of mimicry at play here, Batesian and Mullerian mimicry. Batesian mimicry is when a harmless animal mimics a toxic or harmful animal. A good example of this is the coral and king snakes. I'd recommend looking up a picture of them. The color pattern is very distinctive and it's hard to tell the two apart. The coral snake is highly venomous. It has the second most deadly venom behind the black mamba and it has distinctive red, black, and yellow bands. The king snake, however, is completely harmless and yet it sports red, black, and yellow bands that look very like the coral snakes. The king snake is able to survive longer and produce more offspring this way because predators generalize stimuli. This means that a predator, say a hawk, that tries to eat a coral snake will quickly learn that that red, black, and yellow murder rope was no good. The predator then generalizes that stimulus and avoids all red, black, and yellow murder ropes. This is an advantage for the king snake because it means it is more likely to survive and make babies. The same thing happens with those harmless frogs that have bright colors and patterns like poison dart frogs. The harmless frog gets eaten less often because predators learn to avoid anything that looks bright and colorful. Mullerian mimicry is a little more complex. This is when a group of organisms all evolve to look like each other to signal that they are all toxic. Many species of poison dart frog are brightly colored and they are all toxic. Why would they all evolve this bright coloration? Well, all of the species benefit this way by taking advantage of predator generalization. If a predator eats one species of bright yellow poisonous frog, it will quickly learn that that bright yellow color led to an unfun experience. That predator will then be less likely to try and eat a bright orange poisonous frog. The same is true vice versa. And in this case, all the frogs are more likely to survive and make babies. So now let me pose a question to you. Why does a peacock have long and bright tail feathers? Because they're trying to be fashionable? <laughs> well, they definitely succeed in that. But surely conspicuous and cumbersome tails would make the bird more likely to be eaten and therefore less able to reproduce. And yet the peacock's feathers exist and the peacocks seem to be doing just fine. Similarly, why do deer have large antlers? Don't they get stuck in trees? Don't they get stuck to each other? Wouldn't that make the deer less likely to survive if they get stuck all the time? And yet deer have large antlers. And if you live in the Northeast United States, you know that the deer are doing just fine. So how do these examples fit into an evolutionary model? Well, the peacock's tail was so baffling that even Darwin himself declared that the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail makes me sick. Well, the answer to the peacock's tail, the deer's antlers, and other baffling forms of weird skin come in the form of sexual selection. Basically, females can be picky. If a female decides she likes something, then she will make babies with males who have that thing. This sets off a positive feedback loop in that males with bright colors or large antlers make more babies, making those traits more common in the population, and that's evolution. But female selection still leaves some questions unanswered. Why is female selection a more powerful driver of evolution than the survival of the male? Dr. Richard Prum, a professor here at Yale, has made an entire career of this conundrum. His book, The Evolution of Beauty, provides a compelling argument that seemingly dangerous coloration is the result of an individual having genes that allow it to take excess risk and still survive. I would recommend checking out this book. It's fascinating listening to Dr. Prom talk about his work. This argument brings sexual selection into more focus. Together, female choice and advantageous genes that allow risk-taking explain the peacock's tail. 
So what about Darwin? Well, he did eventually make his peace with the peacock's tail before he died, but it took a while and he wasn't happy about it. <laughs> and finally, how could we possibly talk about weird animal skin without talking about cephalopods? I mean, come on, an octopus can change the color and texture of its skin to mimic rocks, algae, even other animals. Have you seen those videos where they, they put um, cephalopods in an environment that's like human-like, like a like tiled floors or like a bedroom setting, and so it'll blend in with like a human environment? It's really funny. They're not that good at blending in with like not natural surroundings, but they're all right. That reminds me of Finding Dory <laughs> with the octopus. So cephalopods win the superlative of weirdest skin hands down. But how do they do this? And why do they do this? It seems like a lot of effort to have the coolest skin around. Well, the answer to this question can be summed up this way. It's hard to be squishy in the ocean. The ocean is a highly developed ecosystem. The first life on Earth started in the ocean, and that ecosystem has had 3.7 billion years to develop its complex food web and life forms. The ocean is full of competent predators, sharks, eels, and so, so, so many fish. And as I'm sure you can imagine, being a squishy, nutritious ball of muscle puts you at the top of the menu for these predators. So cephalopods evolved a different approach. Rather than developing armor for protection or speed to get away, the best defense for a cephalopod is to never be seen at all. The cephalopod that was never seen was more likely to survive and reproduce. Then evolution kicked in and their methods for not being seen became ever more complex until they became the masters of camouflage that they are today. Many coleoid cephalopods, a group which includes the octopus, cuttlefish, and squid, have specialized organs and cell types in their skin that allow them to be these masters of camouflage. The first is the chromatophore. You may recognize some parts in that word. The word comes from Greek with chromo meaning color and phore meaning bearer of. From that, you might guess that the chromatophore is an organ in cephalopod skin that allows it to change color. Muscles and nerves in the skin change the shape of the organ, thus allowing more or less pigment to show in the skin. This organ relies on pigments, which are usually only red, yellow, or brown. However, cephalopods can mimic more colors than just red, yellow, and brown. So to expand the range of colors, they use structures called iridophores. And these are stacks of thin cells that reflect different wavelengths of light. The cephalopod can use these structures to take on an even wider array of colors in camouflage. Some cephalopods have yet another type of skin cell that allows them to have even better camouflage. This is called a leucophore, and it scatters all wavelengths of light to appear white. And fun fact, this is exactly what a polar bear's fur does. This lets the animal have a white background that makes the colors from their chromatophores and iridophores pop. But color isn't the only thing you need for expert camouflage. Cephalopods also need to blend into the texture of the environment. And this is where papillae come in. These sections of skin can be raised and lowered using internal hydrostatic pressure to change the texture of the skin. This allows the cephalopod to have a less identifiable outline, thus making them even more difficult to see. So despite the fact that cephalopods could be a squishy, nutritious snack for predators, their incredible skin lets them survive and make more babies. Along the way, they happen to become the world's best in camouflage. So skin is weird. While it initially seems like a simple boundary to keep insides in and outsides out, 
Skin is also the first way that an animal interacts with its environment. This makes skin a visible way for us to understand evolutionary pressures. So going back to why skin is weird? Basically, weird skin lets organisms survive better and make more babies. Lizzie has just explained how skin can be really weird and how this weird skin helps animals live and have babies. Importantly, skin provides the first barrier between us and the environment. So it might make sense that some animals have weird skin adaptations that let them get necessary water, nutrients, and oxygen from their environment. Similarly, humans have specialized skin that allows us to absorb water, nutrients, and oxygen, but most of that skin is internal. For example, our lungs are made of a thin layer of skin that is permeable to absorb the oxygen that we breathe. Our external skin, or epidermis on the other hand, is not particularly good at absorbing oxygen because it's made of many layers. By contrast, amphibians have very thin external lung-like skin that's really good at exchanging oxygen. And the average amphibian can get up to 50% of their oxygen content through their skin. So what are their lungs for then? Well, in this case, amphibian lungs serve as an accessory organ that's not extremely necessary. It can aid in breathing, but it's not the most important part of their body for oxygen exchange. Amphibians, such as frogs, have a tadpole stage in their development in which all of their oxygen comes through their skin, and they develop lungs as they metamorphose into their adult form. But there are some rare examples, such as the Bornean flathead frog, that never develop lungs and remain lungless with all of their oxygen being absorbed through their skin for their entire lives. In a current biology journal correspondence published in 2008, Researchers documented that these frogs tend to live in areas with cold, rushing water where they cling to rocks so they're not being dragged away by the current. This is because cold water is much better at dissolving gases like oxygen and the water movement allows it to pass over their skin so they have access to ample oxygen to survive. And lunglessness is actually fairly common among amphibians. There are over 350 different species of salamanders that lack lungs, the first of which were discovered in the early 1900s. These salamanders have evolved unique skin adaptation that make their lungless breathing even more efficient. For example, many lungless animals are really wrinkly, which increases the overall surface area of their skin, meaning that there's a greater area over which to absorb oxygen. And this is pretty similar to our lungs that have tiny little pockets that create a bumpy surface, which overall increases the surface area on our lungs for oxygen absorption. In a study published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society in 2018, researchers discovered that some of these lungless salamanders will actually secrete a protein on their skin that is expressed in the human lung called surfactant. In lungs, such as in humans, surfactant coats the surface and creates a thin film that allows for efficient oxygen transfer into the lungs. In salamanders, surfactant might do the same thing, just instead it could facilitate oxygen transfer through their skin. And amphibians use their skin for much more than oxygen absorption. It's also how they drink water. 
This is part of the reason amphibians need to live a semi-aquatic lifestyle so they can soak up some of the water through their skin. Just like water is easily absorbed through the permeable skin of a frog, they can quickly dehydrate through evaporative water loss, which is kind of like sweating, in which water travels out of the frog through their skin. So frogs cannot go very long without access to water, but some frogs might live in areas that can go without consistent rain for up to a year. How does that work? Is drying out a major cause of death in frogs? Is it a big risk factor for animals that depend on being in water? Yeah, it really is. They need to identify strategies to avoid death by drying out, essentially, which is not something we think about very often. Examples of animals that have adapted to dry climates include the burrowing frogs of Australia, first described in 1981, that go by the genus name Cyclorana. During the annual dry season in northern Australia, these frogs will secrete a mucus layer through their skin, which will harden and protect the frog from drying out until rain comes again and then liberates the frog from this mucus cocoon. You can kind of think of this cocoon like lotion. You know, we put lotion onto our skin to prevent it from getting dry and dehydrated and it'll seal moisture into our skin so that it's not easily evaporated away. This sounds a little bit grosser than lotion though. Yeah, I don't know that I would prefer to start having a mucus cocoon. I think I'll just stick with lotion. What are you talking about? We could market it. Yes, mucus cocoons for all. (laughs) Don't think it would sell well. Yeah, probably not. So while these frogs have adaptations that allow them to retain water in arid environments, other organisms will use their skin in unique ways to harvest water from the deserts that they live in. The Australian thorny devil uses its weird skin as a microchannel system for funneling water into its mouth. I really recommend you look up a photo of these lizards. They're covered in head to feet in these sharp, spiky scales and look pretty intimidating. Using their skin to drink, the lizard will absorb water from damp sand either through its feet or it will shake the dew off plants so that this water will land on its back. And a study published in the Royal Society Journal in 2017 showed that these water droplets, say the ones that land on the back of the lizard, will travel via capillary action along what are like little riverbeds or tiny straws that are in between these spiky scales, and the water will travel all the way to the lizard's mouth, allowing it to drink. That is so cool, and I've heard that these lizards have been called blotting paper lizards. I'm guessing that's why. Yeah, so their skin kind of works like a paper towel. Paper towels are filled with these tiny air pockets or channels, and that allows them to drop water via capillary action. And it's pretty much the same thing as the skin of these lizards, which is really awesome. This is an extremely efficient use of minute amounts of water, and this allows the lizard to successfully survive in deserts that are not great habitats for supporting most life. In addition to water and oxygen consumption, animals need to get nutrients from their environment. For humans and many other animals, this requires specialized intestinal epithelial cells, or skin cells that are in the gut, that will absorb nutrients that give us energy, support our body's growth, and maintain the cells that make up our being. By contrast, plants can use the sun's rays to convert light energy into energy that they can use to grow. 
As Lizzie previously explained, coloration can be used for survival and reproduction. And while plants can use flashy coloration too in order to attract pollinators for reproductive purposes, plant color often serves a more direct role in their survival. Plants absorb sunlight using green pigment from chlorophyll or red pigment from carotenoids, and then through the photosynthetic pathway, they create energy. It has long been thought that animals lack the photosynthetic pathway so that they cannot convert sun energy into useful energy. But two such animals, the green sea slug and the pea aphid, have evolved mechanisms to act like plants in harvesting energy from the sun. The sea slug feeds on green algae, its preferred diet, but they only have to eat once in their entire life. During that single meal, these slugs will only partially digest the algae that they eat, leaving the chloroplasts, which are the green photosynthetic part of the algae, intact. After this meal, they look bright green, kind of like a leaf, and they can use this pigment to absorb sunlight like a plant would in order to convert it into energy. So if they become green, what were they like before? Well, when starting out, they are colorless, and right upon metamorphosis into their juvenile stage, they need to have this initial meal, otherwise they die. So it's a very short colorless stage, and then they turn green, but after that quick meal, they can survive for the rest of their lives, which is about a year without eating. Essentially, they are cheaters and thieves that will disguise themselves as a plant in order to live off the energy supplanted by the sun. The orange pea aphid differs from the sea slug in that it doesn't require feeding to get energy from the sun. Their orange color comes from carotenoids, which are thought to be exclusively produced in plants. Is this the same as the pigment found in carrots? I feel like I may have heard of beta carotene in carrots. Yeah, exactly. So that same orange color that's in carrots is also what's making the pea aphid orange. And a 2010 study in the journal Science showed that these carotenoids are produced by the pea aphid itself, not something that it's eating. And a follow-up study in 2012 published in Scientific Reports showed that this pigment allows the aphid to absorb sunlight and convert it into energy. This essentially makes the pea aphid an animal-plant hybrid. The pea aphid and the green sea slug highlight the amazing diversity in metabolic processes that are used by animals and that challenge the lines that we as scientists draw between the kingdoms of life and what defines them, like what makes an animal an animal and what makes a plant a plant. Ultimately, animals on the whole live in vastly different habitats, and they have creative ways for surviving and thriving in their environment. This diversity is key to their survival, as it leaves them well adapted to their specific habitat. Because skin is external, it provides the first boundary for interacting with the outside world. So skin can have weird adaptations that allow animals to interact with their environment in a meaningful way in order to live and reproduce. So as Devin's described, the skin is our first interaction with our environment. And because it's our first interaction with our environment, it's constantly at risk of being torn and injured. Most injuries that we as humans heal from, heal through or repair mechanisms that typically result in scarring. For skin repair and regeneration, I'm going to discuss uh, scarring because it's what we're most familiar with as humans have yet to master the skill of like full regeneration. 
This is not to say that mammals can't heal in amazing ways. Skeletal muscles heal well after damage. Our liver can partially regenerate if sections are removed. Children's fingertips can regenerate after am amputation and fetuses have the ability to heal without scarring. But these are exemptions to the rule and I think we're most familiar with scars that remain after any damage to our skin. Simply put, there are five types of scars that humans typically deal with. The first type is a hypertrophic scar, characterized as being red and raised above the normal level of skin. These scars are due to an overproduction of collagen, which is characteristic of many types of scars. And uh, I think most frequently we can associate them with uh, what happens after burns. The second type of scar is a keloid scar. These are inert masses of collagen that grow past the original like wound location. They reflect the original shape of the wound though. So a, a keloid scar of stitches will look like original stitches. My brother has one of these on his chest and apparently the torso is the most common location of keloids. And they're also more common among people with darker skin. Unfortunately, there are no animal models for keloid scars. Uh, they've made mouse-human hybrid animal models that can produce some similarities for human keloid scarring, but no animal model is known to display all features of human keloid scar formation. Next are the atrophic scars. These are sunken pitted scars that are usually associated with acne, chickenpox, staph infection, and spider bites. I have one of these on my face from a spider bite. And um, I'm sure we all know somebody who had really severe chicken pox and you can kind of tell. Additionally, shot scars, like the smallpox shot, will leave these types of scars in your arm. Yeah, I recently got an atrophic scar from giving blood and I'm assuming it's just gonna be a part of me now. <laughs> I had one from a shot for literally years. It took years for that to go away. Yeah, that's the other strange fact about scars, um, is that some we accept that we're probably going to live with and some we hope will go away sooner rather than later. Additionally, stretch marks are a type of scar. Uh, they're due to a sudden stretching of the skin, which can be gross births, weight gain, pregnancy, or pressure during a skin repair process. So if you're like trying to repair where your skin is missing and you stretch it too far, or you put too much pressure on it, it can also create a stretch marks. These are usually white or bluish and feel like a kind of depression in the skin. I know I have tons of stretch marks and as much as the media edits stretch marks out of people's skin, they, they definitely exist and they're just a common part of like being a human. <laughs> I don't think I know a single person who doesn't have stretch marks. It's a very normal thing. Um, Finally, our belly buttons are actually a scar too. I don't think I've ever thought of them that way, but they're technically an umbilical scar. And this is from where our umbilical cord is cut and that it'll heal differently for everybody. So that's why everyone has a slightly different looking belly button and why they'll heal in different formations. Like we know that there's any and outies, but I looked it up and there's actually tons of categories for how many different types of belly button shapes there can be. So, Unlike humans, some animals are actually able to regenerate skin or regenerate limbs without any scars or any noticeable markings. Lizards are actually an optimal model to study skin regeneration. And more accurately, I'm discuss discussing skinks, which I didn't learn until making this episode that there's kind of a difference between lizards and skinks. The difference is that Lizards are kind of this larger grouping and skinks are a family within lizards and they have a lot of these limb and regenerative properties along with having like little to no neck. 
some of these skinks can regenerate their skin cells, cells in their brain, their optic nerves, and what we're probably most familiar with, regenerating their tails. Growing up, I was incredibly obsessed with blue-tailed lizards, which are actually called common five-lined skinks. As the name suggests, they're skinks that have five black lines down their back over tan skin, and they have these bright blue tails. Most importantly, their tails regrow. And I would sit in my backyard and I would collect them all up. I would hold them up by their tails until their tails popped up and they ran away. And I was really obsessed with this for one like strange reason when I was little. And uh, a quote that I found on the Maryland, where I grew up, Maryland DNR website says that this should only be attempted by experienced handlers as these animals have powerful jaws that can deliver a painful bite. Or five-year-olds with like very minimal parental supervision. <laughs> um, in retrospect, this was not a very nice thing for me to do, but I felt okay doing it as a small child, thinking that the lizards would like go home to their families and regrow their tails. Now I know that this is probably not the case and the lizards probably had a tough time living until their tails were fully regrown. The lizard's tails fall off as a response to perceived threats like a small child carrying a bunch of them around and holding them upside down. And the process of autotomy or the self-severing of their tails requires severing the spinal cord, peripheral nerves, blood, and skeletal tissue. In theory, the tail will remain with the predator as a distraction so that the lizard can escape. That's horrifying. <laughs> but how do the lizards do this without like bleeding to death? So the lizards actually have uh, sphincters along the major arteries that supply the tail with blood. And these contract upon detachment, which minimizes the blood loss. The tail itself has a fracture plane, similar to a fault line for an earthquake. And this gives a predetermined location for self-severing and allows the autotomy to repeat, assuming that they have healed adequately after each one. So in theory, the lizards can lose their tail multiple times in their lifetime and continue to regrow it back. The only major difference is that the new tail will not have any more bone. It will be replaced with something called a cartilage cone. So it has no vertebrae bones and it will also lose gray spinal cord matter. And it's also worth noting that the regenerated lizard tail is fully functional. So it's slightly different when it comes back, but it still serves its purpose. It will be blue again and it will be a distraction for future small children. <laughs> How long does it take uh, the tail to regrow? I had trouble finding the exact amount of time, but I did see numbers in general for lizards, not specifically the skink, that indicated maybe 60 days. And I'm sure that there's some variation around that number. So it's probably a long time in the grand scheme of the lizard's lifetime. So, if scars are meant to protect us from infection, how do these lizards prevent getting infections while their tails are healing? So um, this is a little bit complicated because as I'll touch on later a little bit more is that part of why humans and mammalian skin will scar so heavily is because our body is like rushing to heal it over as fast as possible and prevent infection. Some research on lizards, not specifically the five-tailed skink, but other lizards shows that the lizards are just good at directing um, leukocytes and lysosomes to the area so that they can easily handle any type of bacteria that's present in that area. 
granulocytes, migrating keratinocytes, and uh, some macrophages form this very effective barrier that's responsible for limiting the micropenetration when they're trying to heal in an adequate fashion. So unfortunately, we're not closely related to skinks, and they don't make an optimal model for studying the potential for regeneration in humans. For that, we're going to need a mammal, and I have a mammal ready for this. The spiny mouse is this adorable tiny mouse and they have little scaly tails and that sort of spiky fur similar to hedgehog spikes. They're actually really close relatives of gerbils and not as closely related to mice, even though we're calling them a spiny mouse. And uh, in laboratory experiments, they're often compared to mice because that's our animal model for a lot of things that have to do with humans. They're the only mammal capable of autonomic release of skin or the self-severing, like I discussed with the skink, and they're capable of doing this when they're attacked by predators. So what all can the spiny mouse regenerate? So the spiny mouse can almost regenerate everything. They can replace their hair, oil, or like sebaceous glands, cartilage, smooth muscle, skeletal muscle, and even the pili smooth muscles that surround our hair and create goosebumps. They can do a lot of different regenerations. But why? Why would it need to be able to do all this? Well, I mean, why would it need to be able to do all of it? I think it's because maybe they're being attacked all the time by predators, but like how they're able to do it is incredibly complex. Um, they're a huge area of research right now. Like once scientists have discovered that they're able to do this, then all of this work is directed towards understanding it and comparing them to our laboratory mice models. So uh, there is a lab comparison of hair follicle growth after a wound between the lab mice and spiny mice. And, and researchers from UCLA were extremely surprised that the hair follicle cycle for the spiny mouse was much longer and less frequent compared to the lab mice. They would cut these different sized wounds into the mice, which is extremely sad. And then they evaluated their hair type, hair cycling, and the response to the wound size. The spiny mice had like a bulge of hair that would grow quickly after the um, wound. And it had greater expression of stem cell markers like K15 and CD34. All these regenerated hairs that the spiny mouse grew were pigmented, unlike the lab mice. And many of the studies that are conducted to better understand why spiny mice are able to regenerate so well are also burn studies. So they'll use burn injury models where the spiny mouse is proven to regenerate a number of different tissues, including the skeletal muscle, dermis, hair, sebaceous glands, and skin that's almost indistinguishable in its original appearance. So it's not really forming any type of scar at all. Researchers have also noted that the internal tissues, such as the kidney and heart, also heal with reduced inflammation, thus leading to the hypothesis that the spiny mouse's great ability to heal is linked to their immune system and what is referred to as a blunted immune response. So a blunted immune response is more consistent with like a mammalian fetus's and lower vertebrates ability to regenerate like the skink. It's known that there's an inverse relationship between the immune response level and the ability to regenerate. So humans, we have like a very high immune response level and like next to no ability to regenerate. Animals like the spiny mouse who have a pretty blunted and, and what we consider a low immune response, they're able to regenerate better. The immune response of mammals are so complicated and so strong 
And that means that they're able to kill pathogens very well, but it also means that during the wound process, they're going to damage some of the surrounding tissue and they leave scars. And the scars, along with other factors, limit our ability to regenerate or heal in a way that's in the same shape as it originally was. The spiny mice have little to no chemokine or cytokine expression, and because they have so few neutrophils, their blood serum is responsible for killing the bacteria, and this means that they've limited the amount of inflammation that occurs when they have a wound. An extension of this different immune response is that the spiny mouse has an influx of cytotoxic and regulatory T cells after a wound, which is in contrast to the helper T cells that accumulate in lab mice and lead to all of the inflammation and eventually the fibrosis that forms a scar. Another difference between lab mice and spiny mice are the types of collagen found in their, in their extracellular matrix. In lab mice, the ECM is dense and mostly made of collagen 1, and collagen 1 is a uh, makes up a large proportion of our bones and skin, whereas spiny mice have a very porous extracellular matrix, matrix and their collagen is primarily collagen type 3, which is a soft tissue type. One theory for why animals that have a blunted immune response are able to regenerate is the assumption that maybe these are the remaining vestiges of a regenerative ability in humans what, that we have lost to evolution. There's an hypothesis that the reason why we scar instead of like a full replicant regeneration is due to the evolutionary need to heal quickly and in unclean conditions. So if our goal is that we get a wound and we're living in the wilderness, it'll probably get infected and we don't want that because then we'll definitely die. So if we could heal very, very fast, even if it comes at the cost of having an imperfect skin afterwards. And the theory is that evolutionary, we were trying to avoid infection and not trying to regenerate. So we don't want our wound to be open for very long. We don't want to get an infection, but this rapid and extremely redundant inflammatory response that forms scars is probably why we we have scars and the evolutionary need for that. A notable difference between animals that scar and those that don't is how many blood vessels that are present at the wound site during the scar formation. So the vascular density in the new area can actually be double of that in the surrounding uninjured skin. These blood vessels tend to be messy and they lack the structural support and organization that's typically present under our skin. All of this boils down to a trade-off. It's a cost-benefit relationship and it seems like us as humans ended up on the wrong, ended up on one end of the spectrum where we heal fast, but it tends to be kind of messy. So we've learned a lot today from the function of skin to why our skin doesn't heal perfectly. So what's everybody's favorite thing that they learned today? I think it's just cool to think about the many, many ways that all the animals are different in the way that they function in their environment, but they all use their skin in really cool ways in order to interact with it. Whether it's the thorny devil lizard, which interacts with its environment to harvest water in the desert where there isn't a lot of water, or learning about the spiny mouse, which will use its skin as a tactic to get away from predators. And there's just so many different ways for them to survive and thrive that is really cool. I think I was interested to, I guess I always know this about animals and humans, but that every animal, yeah, has like a niche that they're very good at and 
that's reflected in some aspect of their skin and how they're able to heal or regenerate or camouflage or suck up nutrients from the environment, but that no animal has mastered doing all of them at once. That like, no matter what, the hagfish is still gonna be kind of gross, even though we have to acknowledge that like, it has filled its niche and being slimy is part of that. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess we don't have to feel so bad about the fact that we form scars because we can't excel at everything. Yeah, as cool as it would be to be able to eat once and then synthesize our own food from the sun for the rest of our lives, we would miss out on a lot of delicious food, and I would miss that for sure. Yeah, I mean, all these animals, like going back to survival of the fittest, you know, we we view the term fit from a human perspective but you know the hagfish is incredibly fit in its environment and it has gross slime also i'm looking forward to hagfish clothes <laughs> and you know the the frogs with the their lotion equivalent gross to us but makes it fit for its environment and don't forget about the blood sweat that'll stick with me for a long time Oh, yeah, the blood sweat is still horrifying. And honestly, I'm really glad that the lizards can regenerate, and I'm really glad that they grow new tails. It doesn't make it any less horrifying. I think it's still utterly horrifying that they sever their own spines. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, like, the lizards, um, at least the, the blue-tailed skinks, they have a very bright blue color that's similar to the blue color of the poison dart frogs but the dark frogs are signaling that you, they should be left alone. Whereas the lizards are like giving a decoy part of their body where they're like, fine, if you're going to try and eat me, just eat this one part because I'm going to leave it behind. But it's both the same color. They're just used differently in the wild and in a totally different environments. So the birds aren't interacting with both of them. Yeah. There's some fascinating research on mimicry and coloration in ecology, you can go down a very, very, very deep rabbit hole on the genetics of mimicry and ecology in things like coloration. And I know this because I did. I went down that rabbit hole. Super interesting, but a little much. I'm amazed by how so many animals that are considered like squishy or have really thin skin or skin that we think wouldn't offer much protective advantage are actually able to use that to their advantage and so I think of like the alligator the crocodile rhinoceros something super protective but then these spiny mouse have find a way around that like you can injure them and then they can just repair it so it's I think going back to the cost benefit analysis analysis is is really something to keep considering and thinking about so I think the thing that I've learned today, the, the main thing that I'm going to take away is that skin isn't just for keeping your insides inside, that it serves so many other functions from taking in nutrients and water to protecting against predators to keeping you safe from infection to attracting a mate that skin serves all of these functions. So the next time you pull a tail off a lizard, don't feel bad. <laughs> It'll come back. <laughs> I would still feel bad.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Hallworth and Wei Ying, and the deputy editors for the skin issue, Halbert Bai and Connor Graham. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. And as always, thank you for tuning in.